Have you ever admired a leader and wondered just what it is that makes her who she is? How he came to embrace the things that advanced him? Welcome to Timeless Leadership, where we look at the principles that define success. This is a show for leaders at all stages of their careers who aspire to understand what it truly means to be a leader. And who is a leader? Dolly Parton said, If your actions inspire others to dream more, learn more, do more, and become more, you are a leader. Together, we'll explore key principles, not only in the sense of fundamentals, but also in the ethical sense, the habits, character traits, and virtues that form the backbone of leadership, principles that are just as relevant and essential in the 21st century as they were in the first century. This is Timeless Leadership. Well, hello there and welcome once again to Timeless Leadership, where we explore the principles and virtues that accompany successful and admirable leaders. I'm Scott Monty, and we're now in our second season and our listenership is growing, so thank you for that. We do, do these uh, shows live every week on Fireside Chat, and then we package them up as a podcast for listening later on. And of course, the bonus of listening live is you have the opportunity to jump in and ask questions and become part of the conversation as well. So feel free to listen uh, now or uh, on whatever podcasting platform is your preference. And if you wouldn't mind, please take the time to subscribe to my newsletter, Timeless and Timely, where I regularly write about these topics. Now, this week's topic is trust. Trust. It's, it's a word that's really on everyone's minds these days, and um, partially because there seems to be such a lack of it. Um, and, well, maybe there's not a lack of it, but maybe there's a perceived lack of it. That's up for discussion. And as we give so much of ourselves to companies online our money, our time, our attention, even our data. How frequently are we considering what we actually get from them in return? Oh, sure, we get information, we get personal connections, and uh, we even get deals uh, from time to time. And these are things that the platforms and the brands provide. But how deeply do you really trust these organizations? Do you trust them with your data? Do you trust how they treat their employees? Do you trust them to do the right thing? Deep questions that are masked by our personal busyness. That is, when we stay distracted by clicks and swipes and scrolls. This is a good time to pause and consider what it takes to be trustworthy and how leaders can move beyond the buzzwords of empathy and authenticity, and truly gain a foothold in trust. As a professional designer and content strategist who has taught workshops, keynoted conferences, and advised marketing teams around the world, Margot Bloomstein is a trusted voice in the field. For over 20 years... She's worked diligently to practice and teach the essentials of content strategy, working with firms across a variety of industries, including software as a service, financial services, apparel, municipal agencies, and even sex toy retailers. Margot previously co-authored Content Strategy at Work, real-world stories to strengthen every interactive project. And she's the principal of Appropriate Inc., a brand and content strategy consultancy based in Boston. That's where she enjoys painting, photography, drawing, exploring museums, and hiking with Rex, an adopted white German shepherd rescue. And now, she's taken all of that experience and packed it into a punchy and stimulating look at building brands in her newest book, Trustworthy, How the Smartest Brands Beat Cynicism and Bridge the Trust Gap. 
Margot, welcome to Timeless Leadership. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. Excellent. Well, I'm going to start a little backwards there. I want to know maybe what you learned from Rex, your German shepherd, about trust. Oh, oh you know, no one has ever asked me that. And I, it's a topic that I'm very excited to talk about. Um, I think if you're if you're a dog person, or maybe just if you're a person, you know that so much so much of the way we relate to the world is through nonverbal communication and by establishing rapport. And before you can get people to to trust you, before you can get a dog to trust you, you have to establish rapport through through things like consistency, through through kind of showing up with the the sort of tone and personality and um, and feedback that that they're starting to expect. And with with adopting a dog, he came to us uh, from a rescue organization back in November. So we've we've had him almost a year now. Um, but with adopting a dog, you have to kind of figure out what they need to to build trust. Um, so that you can earn their trust and and also as you're getting to know them, they can earn yours. And mm. I think as a dog person, I, I've come to expect that you have to meet every dog where they are. They all have such different personalities and backstories and whatnot. We don't know all of his backstory as a rescue. We know a little bit about him, sort of his his demographic, I guess you could say. I mean, he's a German Shepherd. He's <laughs> he's about four years old. Still has a lot of puppy energy, um, and and we know it goes with all of those things. But getting to know him and letting him get to know me, that's taken vulnerability. It's um, it, it's taken setting expectations and fulfilling those expectations consistently, whether it's about how he knows he'll, what sort of response he will get for climbing on the couch or for jumping up on somebody um, or what time he knows he'll be able to look down and see his dinner every night. Um, it's through that kind of consistency and vulnerability in our, in our communication, I think, that, that we've built trust. And, um, yeah, I'd like to say everything about trust uh, that I know I've learned from my dog, but I think... <laughs> He's definitely underscored many of those things. <laughs> That's great. Well, I'm, I'm glad we hit on a topic that you haven't covered yet uh, in, <laughs> in your launch here. This is uh, fantastic. And look, I, I think it is incredibly consistent. You know, you talk about consistency there. It's consistent with your own experience as a designer, even your hobbies and, uh, you know, photography and, and painting and drawing. Those are all visual, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, they really, they really are. Yes. Well, um, that that. Uh, well, I was just going to say, like, I've ahead. been working in content strategy for the past twenty years. My background before that was in design, but I think in whether you're somebody that's a visual communicator or a more verbal communicator, whether you're working in marketing or or copywriting or um, or creative direction, I think in all of those arenas, it's about kind of figuring out what your audience needs, what sort of baggage they're bringing to an experience, mm. um, whether they are the people on your team or or more the people kind of in your in your external audience um, well, and meeting them on those on those grounds. Yeah, and how do you go about figuring out what that is? I mean, I know you just mentioned with Rex, with your German Shepherd, um, you have to make certain assumptions. You don't actually know what the backstory is, but... Talk a little bit about how you explore that with different audiences and, and step up to meet that need. Well, I think when we're talking about external audiences, sometimes I think it's a, it's a little bit easier for, mo for many people in, in professional communications because we can look to things um, like search engine logs to see the kind of language they're using when, when they're searching for information. Um, we, can, we can research customer service logs to see when they're calling in for support, when they're looking to engage with a company or asking questions about a product, how are they describing it? What are the needs that they're, that they're bringing to the table? And they're kind of giving us that information. And then I think there's also um, the more quantitative side of user research, what we can gain through, through surveys and studies and focus groups. And I think in all of those respects, people that, that engage with with brands 
or giving up that information freely in a gambit to say, let me help you help me. Let me help you better serve my needs and speak my language and and focus on the things that I think are important. And I think for organizations that that miss that mark, that just lead with what they think is important, um, I mean, there, there's always that sort of like Nathi Sotom, know thyself kind of stage in a brand, but then it's also important to get to know your audience. And I think for for leaders that are looking to better engage their teams, prospective employees, um, the to grow within the broader company, there I think it's a little bit more challenging because we don't always have nearly as many ways to um, – to analyze the kind of language that people use. And instead we have to, to look to more qualitative means of, of listening to your, to your team, listen to your company, see what is most important to them, see what they value and ask them what they value to, to best meet them on that kind of playing field. Mm, Yeah. And, you know, with so many uh, listening tools that we have now, uh, so Mm. many platforms and whatnot, uh, it it seems like there's no excuse not to listen, but ultimately we still see brands plowing ahead and and um, not having the uh, implicit trust that we think they should have. What, why do you think they're they're missing out on that for the most part? I mean, I think it. I don't know if I would say that brands are missing out on on opportunities to build trust, but I think that it's tough to walk that that sort of tightrope of not losing themselves in in interaction, not losing themselves in the corporate landscape or in the marketplace um, while still meeting the needs of their audience. And I mean, one of um, one of my favorite examples that that I developed in, in writing Trustworthy comes from Penzi's Spice Company. They're a, a spice retailer based in the Midwest, based in Milwaukee, and um, they've become known not just for selling cinnamon and pepper and whatnot, but also for for being very vis- very very visible with their values, making their values very visible, kind of wearing them on the sleeve. And um, and talking openly about the politics that affect their business, the politics that they feel are most relevant to their target audience um, and the different audiences they serve. And I think some companies in in many industries shy away from that. They they don't want to put themselves out there that much. But I think this is an example of a company that has put themselves out there. They've been vulnerable. They've they've talked about their particular stances on everything from from immigration um, to labor rights and voting rights. And they've said, hey, you know, anybody that's going to call us out and say, you know, stay in your lane there, Spice folks. (laughs) This is our lane because these are issues that affect our audience. Um, these are issues that affect our, our sourcing. Yeah. Um, the story of, of cooking is the story of, of immigration in this country. So I think that's a case where a business is building trust by not shying away from their values and making themselves known. I think to answer your question, though, about what happens when a business just plows ahead oblivious to the, the needs of their target audience, I think that is even more dangerous. We're so worried about Will we alienate parts of our audiences that um, that to just move ahead without interrogating that, without asking that question is probably even more dangerous. Mm. Well, we I should admit we are a huge uh, Penzi Spice fan uh, family here uh, in our oh, household. Excellent. Uh, know their story well. So I was really pleased to hear you uh, say that. I got into uh, a debate with someone on LinkedIn Um in the past month or so, it was specifically around uh, businesses in Texas and the uh, abortion issue that they've uh, they've raised there. Um, and and this person's contention was, you know, businesses should have no um, no business basically saying anything about politics. They they should they should just remain in their business lane. And and you just illustrated perfectly with with Penzi's uh, how they pull this out as something that is kind of a universal human rights concern. And cooking is very much associated with some of those those issues um, in our history and whatnot. But when a, when a company sees a Penzi's and says, "Yes, I want to I want to replicate that for uh, our audience," 
Is that necessarily the the right prescription for them? How would you counsel a brand that's interested in um, approaching this? I mean, I think when we look back through through the history of of how brands have engaged on social issues, even if they are less less politically um, charged issues, I guess you could say, um, there's always that question of authenticity. If a brand is just kind of running after some campaign, trying to jump on that bandwagon, their audience, they, they know that. They, they can see that. And they can also see that when that topic is no longer quite as popular, if a brand kind of forgets about it because it was never really that important there to begin with. So I think for any brand that is is stirred and motivated for the people there to say, this is an issue that matters to us. I think you need to kind of look at look at your internal corporate culture and see what are the issues that that matter to your uh, to the company to to its livelihood and then to the people that make that company. And I think when you respond to those issues, use your the platform that your company has developed. Um, and and commitment to your audience that is affected by those issues to use your platform for good to speak out on it then i don't think you can go wrong but mm-hmm. i think that's that's really the measure of authenticity if it if it matters to the people there and it matters to your target audience then by all means um take a position on it and and throw your weight around for good yeah i think as you mentioned like with the issues in in texas around abortion it is really hard right now, I think, for, for any business to to look at that and make the argument that it isn't relevant to their audience and isn't relevant to their employees. Yeah. I mean, look, if they have women that are part of their uh, their their employee base or their customer base, that, that affects them, period. So. Right, right. We know that reproductive rights are are an economic issue and for women to remain active in the workforce. Or for that matter, for, for women to engage with your company, they need to have a measure of, um, they need to have control over their, their own reproductive rights. And I think most businesses that are, um, that are in business to, to do well and to do good and to meet the needs of their shareholders and um, to, to be a positive growing member of the economy realize that that's the case. Absolutely. You know, Margot, I'm I'm interested in exploring a little bit this this rise of cynicism, it, it, and and obviously the lack of trust. But it makes me wonder: um, Did we ever trust brands implicitly? I'm hesitating only because the idea of trusting brands implicitly um, maybe is too big a question. Mm. I think when we look at, at small businesses and, and any large business that has grown from being a, a small business or a startup, um, and even look back over, over time and kind of like the past hundred, 150 years in, um, in the growth of business in certainly in the United States, we can see how people trusted individuals, people trusted individual shopkeepers, people Mm -hmm. trusted individual, um, individual makers um, and creators of goods and trusted their wisdom, trusted their guidance, um, whether that means you're going into a small business today that maybe is a, is a retailer maybe in the, the home goods space and you're looking for a recommendation on something or you're bringing a car to a mechanic that you have come to trust because they're able to, to kind of bring forth their wisdom and, and sort of help push you to make good decisions around whether it's care for your car, your home, your body, your family. I think all of those relationships and the brands that build around them, the sort of halo of a brand around them, um, those come back to trust. And I think it's when companies grow and we lose the sense of the the individual behind the brand. That's when I think we see some more of those those gaps and maybe not cynicism, but skepticism, wondering if you mm. can trust the guidance of an organization. A lot of what I focus on in Trustworthy is looking at, and I don't think I actually say this explicitly, but it's looking at how we scale up some of those strengths from individuals 
to the brand, um, how we how we build up in terms of still maintaining the right voice with our target audiences, how we how we offer the right level of detail and information so that people can make good decisions, not because they're turning to an individual, maybe somebody that, that runs a company, but because they're turning to the company itself and wondering, okay, can you give me enough information so that I can feel confident in shopping here and in doing business with you? I think that's uh, that's exactly what we need to focus on. I mean, look, it, it seems like all you have to do is put the descriptor big in front of an industry and it automatically uh, makes people skeptical. Big oil, big pharma, um, you know, big tech now as uh, everyone is, you know, kind of focusing on some of the deeds and uh, misdeeds of some of the major platforms. Um, there, there's an inherent skepticism and cynicism that's built into uh, that bigness. And look, I was part of Big Auto uh, at one mm-hmm. point, and and that's exactly how we got around it. We started bringing it down to the individual level level and helping people understand the people inside the company that were doing good or that were, um, you know, spearheading projects and made it more relatable to them uh, rather than just an entity. And can can you talk a little bit maybe about how um, that that kind of authenticity, that kind of storytelling, uh, comes through in in your uh, in your models? Well, I think that idea of bringing things back down to the level of the individual that plays out that can play out a few different ways in many in many businesses because we see the benefits of making information. Um, more human scale, whether that is visual or verbal information. I think we've moved away in many businesses from visual branding that is kind of big, soaring, inaccessible images and looked at how for many companies, they're able to to kind of change their visual language into product photography that incorporates a human element so that People do understand how people relate to products, whether it's by having a a hand in the image so people see like the size of the product or showing people kind of breaking the breaking the fourth wall, so to speak, and making eye contact with the viewer. That helps to humanize the the experience, whatever the kind of product is you're selling. I think other ways in which we do that, as you mentioned, through storytelling, when when we have a, a brand writ large, that is inaccessible um, and, and kind of up on a, on a high pedestal. But when organizations spotlight the stories of individual customers, when they're constantly bringing out new testimonials and video shorts and, and clips of people interacting with or talking about the product, then you're able to, to get information from somebody that's ostensibly just like you. And again, it makes it that much more human scale, um, even without getting into the idea of, okay, now you're hearing a, a testimonial from a real person rather than just the marketing department. Even without that, hearing from one versus hearing from an entity is a much more powerful experience. I think the other way, though, that we can embrace that kind of of vulnerability and the power of the individual is by looking at what we can do um, in marketing departments and whatnot to empower individual consumers. So by teaching more, by, by bringing out more content that explains how they might interact with the product, how they might make good decisions choosing among different products, all of that content that goes into consumer education builds the confidence of the person on the other side of the screen and and empowering them in that way, I think returns a lot of, um, it returns confidence to the individual so that they can become not just a, a more loyal consumer, but a real champion of the brand as well. Hmm. Uh, Margo, you, you mentioned there about educating consumers and, and kind of bringing them along on the journey with you. Um, and to me, that's, there's so many opportunities there when we look to our customers as almost as partners in in the journey, uh, whether they're mm-hmm. partners in content creation, partners in, oh, I don't know, brainstorming and creating new ideas or new developments uh, that we can work on together. Um, and th- they really feel like they're part of something bigger than yourself. Can you Can you talk a little bit about how we can be better partners with consumers and, and building trust? So um, 
one of the the three pillars that I, I write about in Trustworthy is vulnerability. And I think what you're talking about as far as how we partner with our customers, that takes real vulnerability. It, it takes being able to say, you know, let me show you how the sausage is made. And let me also share with you the the points where we haven't been so great at making the sausage and what we're doing to get better at that. One of the examples that I share around that is is from TED, um, the the wonderful speakers platform, the wonderful platform to to see videos of other speakers and whatnot. And um, and TED has, uh, they do a great job making the sausage. They've done a great job of kind of bringing their guidelines out to different TEDx local events and all, um, cultivating content from them, bringing that back to their their central web presence and also their make to feature it on TED.com. And that's worked really, really well, except for when it hasn't. And a few years ago, they, um, they came under a lot of fire because there were a couple talks that were getting a lot of attention uh, within the science community because one, one of them was um, – was frankly outdated. Um, it was no longer uh, it was no longer science that was that was relevant or good. And um, and they wanted to figure out well, what do we do about this? Do we do we take that talk and kind of expire it off our site? Hope nobody notices that it's gone away. Um, and in another case, there was a talk that was very very popular. I think it had previously been featured on the homepage, and. Um, it wasn't exactly peer reviewed in a way that uh, that would make somebody too confident about what they were hearing. It sounded great, but it turned out the science was completely spurious. It was completely incorrect, um, and uh, and kind of peers within the scientific community were pointing fingers and laughing at it, both mocking the speaker and mocking Ted for for being so gullible as to feature this person. And they didn't know what to do. And I sat down with um, with folks on the team there that um, had had overseen the development and um, and build out of the website, and we talked about that. And they said, "Yeah, it took real vulnerability." But we reached out to to many of those other scientists, to many of our harshest critics, to say, "We don't know what to do here. We're really, really good at at amplifying voices, but we don't always know how to best put them in context so that." It'll be right with the rest of you, the, the kind of peers within the scientific community, and also be right with our audience. What should we do? Give us feedback. And they convened those critics in a series of um, discussions to, to learn what should they be doing to offer context? What can they do when, when a talk is no longer relevant or was never correct to begin with? They came to the conclusion that they would keep those talks, they would keep that content on the site, but offer more context. So they developed additional content types, notes where you can kind of read a bit more about the story, where they prominently leak, link out to um, to more relevant and current talks on the topic. Um, and they allow that content to live, but within the framework of criticism. And mm. that took bravery, it took vulnerability. But by bringing their harshest critics closer, it made them part of the, the process of co-design. They kind of prototyped in public and said, you know, what do you think? Keep giving us feedback. Let us know how to keep improving this. And that process of prototyping in public made many of their harshest critics champions mm. of the brand, really yeah. ardent supporters to say, yeah, I was part of this solution not just kind of part of the peanut gallery. Yeah. And and really the very notion of them being open to criticism. I think that's such a key aspect of leadership. You, you can't be thin-skinned when it comes to this. You need to actually be uh, more open to uh, hearing where people think you've gotten it wrong, even if you don't think you've gotten it wrong. Um, it's really about appreciating the power of their perspective and responding in kind. Right, right. And I would say that also goes back to can you trust your audience? Can Do you respect your audience enough to, to listen to their feedback? And I think that's where we see how trust, trust in your audience, the trust that your audience gives you, that's the difference between being a leader and being a commander. Mm. And that's also why not all managers or CEOs are leaders, mm-hmm. but why leadership can be a feature of anyone's role or, or service within an organization, regardless of their role. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that, that kind of gets me to what I think is uh, another pillar of your framework, and that is voice. 
And as we look to, particularly as we look to CEOs, they, they tend to be leaned on, I think, um, more than any other individual within the executive suite as a spokesperson for a company or a brand. Um, we see a lot of CEOs now that are um, having to step up for these societal issues that we talked about before. Can you talk a little bit about what voice is in this framework and why it's important to gain trust through voice? So as I write about voice, it's the the consistent and familiar way that a brand engages its audience visually as well as verbally. Um, so by using the language that they know or teaching them the, the technical terminology of your industry so that they can talk more knowledgeably about it and, and be able to do their own research and whatnot is necessary. Um, but also the, the visual way in which a brand engages its audience. So lots of times now I hear from different companies that say, you know, we're thinking about relaunching our website, going through a big rebrand. What's your advice to us? My advice right now is always don't. Now is not the time for, for a big visual rebrand. Now is the time to, to stay the course and continue to be the, the brand, the organization that your audience knows because that gives them confidence that they feel like they know you. And I think the same holds true for a CEO engaging, whether it is the, the community of employees or the external audience of, of media and consumers and other businesses within the industry. I think maintaining a consistent voice and a consistent look and feel through the way you engage the world right now especially is, um, is incredibly important because that consistency mm gives your audience confidence that they know who you are. They know how you are. They know what level of um, kind of what level of detail you're going to, to offer them. And also what it sounds like when you're alarmed or when you're excited or when you're bringing a new product to the market and, um, and it's a reason for, for enthusiasm. They've gotten to know what that's like at, at a subconscious level. And I think the best thing that CEOs can do right now for both internal and external audiences is maintain that consistent voice. Yeah. And it, it's nice to have a, a leader who um, doesn't, doesn't come like from out of left field. Like, you know, I would never, if they had a communications department anymore, I would never take a job on the communications department of Tesla for example, because <laughs> you don't know what to expect with Elon Musk other than unpredictability. Like that's his brand. Uh, he's, he's an iconoclast. And if, if that's what you want to be known for, okay, great. I mean, Tesla as a brand is kind of iconoclastic in the automotive industry, uh, but they've also set new standards as well. And now there's, uh, I would imagine we, people would expect there to be some consistency about how it is they go ahead and deliver on that promise. So um, that, that level of consistency out of your CEO, um, that's exactly what Rex is looking for. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's what every dog looks for for right, their owner. Exactly. Cats, cats, I don't know, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cats just want you to serve them a meal on the regular, and, and they'll right, be fine. Right, right. <laughs> um, okay, looks like we have a, uh, a question for you from my good friend Laura DeVoe. Laura, welcome to Timeless Leadership. Hi, Scott. Hi, Margo. Thank you very much for this uh, important topic. I'm fascinated by trust and where we find trust and where that kind of sits. And in the consumer area, something that has come up recently uh, is this uh, uh, situation with AT&T and what came out of their, uh, depends on who you talk to, it depends on the the reporting, but it appears that a lot of the finances that helped to build the OAN uh, network, which is this right-wing, uh, really disinformation network, in my opinion, but that that aside, um, is coming from AT&T. And, you know, I have been an AT&T customer since the first flip phone, um, and uh, I have had to have a conversation with my spouse about where is our money going and what goes on here, and one of the things that is difficult for, for me as a consumer and someone who wants to put trust in companies that I am putting money into is the lack of uh, transparency and the lack of even 
talking to someone who's able to respond to my concerns at the company. Um, I'd like your thoughts on that. I'd like your thoughts on how they're positioning themselves with this. They seem to be in this mode of complete silence. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, what, what would come forward as we are trying to conduct ourselves in a Penzi Spice kind of way um, with companies that are so ingrained in so much uh, that it's very hard to kind of decide where your money is going to go um, and trust in your own purchases. So I'd like your thoughts on that. That's, um, that is a complex issue, but that doesn't mean that we should shy away from it. So I think as you're describing, um, I think it was something like 90% of OAN's revenue came from, from a contract with, with AT&T. Uh, Correct. Well, as Margot tries to uh, get hooked back up, we'll give her a few moments here. Uh, just kind of continuing on, you know, where I think she was going. And it, it is um, it is a complex issue, Laura, as as you know. Um, you know, look, AT and T owns HBO now. They right, own right. the Marvel, uh, the the DC universe. There, there's there, their tentacles extend into so much, and you know, as a consumer, I think you need to figure out exactly what is going to be the most impactful uh, use mm -hmm. of your dollar? Um, mm -hmm. Can you disassociate yourself from AT&T entirely? Probably not. Can you make your voice heard? Yeah. Can you show up to, um, you know, investor relations meetings, shareholder meetings? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, can you, um, you know, mount a campaign with other concerned citizens or consumers uh, to make sure they know what you're, you're, you're thinking? Absolutely. Um, because, the the easiest route right now is inaction. It's ju just mm -hmm. to say, oh, they're too big. There's nothing I can do uh, about this anymore. Um, so I, I'll just I'll sit back and, and do nothing. Uh, and I think that's dangerous because then they just keep going down their merry road. And to your point, they've taken the uh, the mode of silence right now, which is always right. a safe route when you really don't know what to say. But you know, I don't think the heat is going to be off and they're going to need to develop something um, that speaks to what their values are and whether their values are consistent across all of their brands. And if they're not, then they need to be honest about that, too. Right. Uh, they, they acquired a lot of these companies along the way and they, they may be trying to merge many of these different corporate values. Now. Right. The investment they made in OAN, I think, came from AT&T proper, which <laughs> should tell you one thing or another about uh, their brand. Um, and, and quite frankly, maybe it's just a business decision. Maybe they're not looking at it in terms of right versus left. Maybe they're looking at it in terms of, well, there's an audience there to be had, and it, it is our business to monetize an audience. Um <laughs> You don't have to agree with it, but that may be the thinking behind what it is that uh, they're trying to do. Right, right. Yeah, and, and I think some of the, the trust, uh, you know, and maybe another conversation around this is around that antitrust conversation that we're having yes. when it comes to uh, when it comes to companies and business and saying, you know, are these companies just so big that it becomes almost impossible to regulate. It's, uh, you know, I was a big fan of the show, uh, The Good Place. And uh, if you watched that show and you was like, there was this great line that, you know, you got points against you for going to heaven to go to the good place if you ate a chicken sandwich from a place that, but the chicken <laughs> tastes so good, but the chicken is, it's if you eat the chicken sandwich, you hate gay people, you know, and yeah. that's how, we live our lives and it, it, it's, it's more, um, it's more complicated than is the chicken sandwich a good sandwich. So, um, I appreciate this conversation and, and, uh, I appreciate, uh, you tackling this because leadership and trust is, uh, extraordinarily important and in short supply. So thank you both. Absolutely. Margo, do we have you back on the microphone yet? We're still getting nothing. You know, if you can hear me, Margo, and you want to try disconnecting and rejoining, we can we can do that route as well. So uh, happy to uh, to do that, Laura. Uh, I'll keep you up here in case I need an, a, a banter partner uh, okay. on this case. 
Uh, we've bantered before, so it's worse. Yes, we have. We have. I'm happy um, to stay up here and punt. But I, I think yeah. I, I think your point about uh, the chicken sandwich, you know, these aren't black and white issues. Very few things in life are. And, you know, it, it, it's nuanced. And, and I think more people are coming down on one side versus the other right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And, and you can look at the lack of trust in media and how media yeah. has played uh, with, with with the industry of politics uh, mm-hmm. more like it's uh, an industry of athletics, like it's the sports right. industry. Uh, you pick a team and you stick with it and you're loyal to them, yeah. right? right. And, right? And either you support them or you don't. And that, I think, has just built up a, an right. even greater degree of mistrust of the media as a result. Right. Right. I, I agree with you on that. And um, I think that when we look at uh, the media, you know, I was a journal. I was a working journalist before I got into education. I, I love journalism. I used to literally spend as much money on my rent in 1989 on magazine subscriptions as I did on my rent. I mean, that's how messed up it was. Okay. <laughs> um, and you get this uh, and where you consume your news, obviously, as you know, has changed over time, but the, the business model, the clicks that bring people in are what matters, not, not how many people buy the newspaper. And when you um, are looking at this, there is a real deep distrust of uh, what is being covered and why it's being covered. And I think one of the biggest problems there, frankly, is uh, local news. And, um, you know, when we don't have proper local coverage, and I'm not talking, I live in Boston, I'm not just talking about the Boston Globe, which is a great local, but it's really a regional slash uh, kind of moving into the national space, right? It's like right. the Washington, you know, it's not, it's not your local newspaper. It's not the one that covers your high school sports right. and your town right. and, your, and your town elections and all that. Those papers are gone. Yeah. And when you can't find local news that you can trust and that is relevant it makes the bigger stuff, you're, all you can do is focus on the big, and they're only feeding you what they want you to see. Yeah. And, and even there, in the big, we aren't talking about all the coverage. We're talking about what they know is going to sell, sell ad time. Right. You know? Right. And so, yeah, I absolutely agree with you. Margo, looks like we've got you back on microphone. Sorry about that. Yeah, I'm not sure what happened there. That's okay. <laughs> Did you want to add any? I don't know if you heard the the conversation we held in your absence, but I didn't know if you wanted to add anything to that. No, I mean, I think a lot of the points that you're raising, though, around how we how we get kind of broader media coverage to shine a spotlight on, on what's going on in those companies, I think that's, um, as we've kind of lost that local perspective, things can fly sort of... Uh, under the radar a little bit more. And I think for a company like going back to AT&T, what they're able to, to get away with there, um, it's only a matter of how much sort of like spotlight and, and sunshine we can shine on them there so that people can make more informed decisions. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I mean, and otherwise, uh, you know, they just keep going. I mean, look, that's, that's what happened around the turn of the last century with Standard Oil. You know, and you talk about big oil, you know, that was John D. Rockefeller's uh, company mm-hmm. and Ida Tarbell, uh, the original muckraker, um, combed through all sorts of corporate documents and was able to kind of nail them on exactly what was going on. And that's, you know, we saw the rise of uh, trust busting, Teddy Roosevelt, all the rest. Um, it was because there was some light that uh, was shown on the uh, on the, the, the doings of Standard Oil. So. Margo, as we think about, I mean, we've been talking about leaders like at the, the executive level, the CEO level, but as we think down the chain with marketers, content marketers, designers, writers, what can they do to ensure that uh, we begin building back some trust here? I mean, I think there's there's probably three main areas where people in any of those roles, can focus, whether you're a marketer, a, a copywriter, a designer, a creative director, 
I think that the, the first area in which to focus is really around how you build out that consistent voice for your audience, how you can be a champion of that consistent voice visually and verbally so that you're constantly giving people hooks to what is familiar, what they already know about your brand, whether that's mirroring their vocabulary, giving them um, imagery and layout that they know how to understand to, to move through your site, move through your print collateral, and, and continue to, to get information that they need. Um, I think the, the second area in which to focus is on the amount of information you're giving people. Again, visually and verbally, um, in some brands, being able to, to offer consumers a lot so that they can self-educate and become more confident, that's the key to their success. Um, we can see that with, with brands, uh, with consumer brands like Textfield Electronics that is known for producing videos and long-form content and lots of different views on products and really, really long product detail pages where if people are interested in learning about maybe choosing a new camera lens or something like that, they can read and read and read. And when they get to the bottom of that page, their site analytics show. That's when the people go on and keep reading on another page so that by the time somebody puts a product in a shopping cart, they are champions of the brand, loyal to Crutchfield. And they feel really confident about what they're getting. And I think it's that confidence that directly correlates to trust in the brand, in the product, and also the kind of trust that a consumer develops in their own wisdom so that they can be more confident. And then I think the other thing that, that designers and writers can do is offer that perspective of vulnerability, looking at ways to, to bring your audience into the process communicate more in the first person so that somebody does feel that that opportunity to to connect with and build rapport with the brand that's great uh, the the three v's basically voice volume and vulnerability that's uh, a great mnemonic um you know it it strikes me that uh, really at our first interaction, particularly with uh, say a platform an app something that uh, is digital. Uh, we're greeted with the terms of service, and <laughs> the terms of service uh, range from, you know, merely uh, taking five minutes to read versus taking 30 minutes to read. I think Microsoft has the record there. Uh, some of these are longer than the Constitution or the Magna Carta, <laughs> and, and, and they certainly don't hold your interest because they're all written in legalese. And I can't remember who it was, but I saw a company that made it its mission to basically dumb down the terms of service so that it's readily understandable, it's consumable in very little time. And right from the get-go, what they've done is they've established trust with their users and the expectation is set. Yeah, I think when we can take even the legal copy that oftentimes feels like it's written by lawyers for lawyers and and look at how even at that level we can strip out the unnecessary details so that it becomes actionable and useful, not just something that you, you kind of click accept and move on from there. Um, I think that's an opportunity to, to start engaging with an audience on their playing field, on their level, so that if you do need them to act on that information or, or agree with it, they at least understand what they're agreeing with. I think it might have been MailChimp that has taken that approach with breaking down legal copy so that it exists always in context. And certainly context helps us understand a lot of more technical information. Um, and also so that people can easily see, well, what do I need to actually know to act on this so that it becomes useful and usable to me, not just irrelevant stuff that I kind of click to get beyond. Mm. And I think doing that work of unpacking technical content it's an act of respect so that your audience is starting out from that position of kind of leaning in to the brand, leaning into the experience of saying, okay, they're willing to meet me where I am. Let's move on now from here. Yeah. I mean, because look, whether you're a brand manager or a lawyer or even the CEO, you are steeped in that brand every single day. And to expect other people who are first timers to, uh, to show up with your level of familiarity, your level of context, um, th that's really a bridge too far. Yeah, I think we see that a lot 
in, in other areas that are steeped in technical content, particularly now around public health, like issues around vaccination, um, public health safety around coronavirus and all. There are a lot of different ways to approach it. And not every public health officer or public health organization starts by saying, let me meet my audience where they are. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, we need people to make good choices about how they keep themselves, their families, and their communities safer and healthier. Um, this is a, the kind of content that demands a response and applying it in your own life. And when we don't meet people where they are, that's when folks get confused or they say, well, they're, you know, they're saying one thing and doing another or changing their message every two days. I can't trust this. And that fundamental level of really scientific illiteracy, that isn't the fault of people that are hearing information about things like vaccination or, or hearing changing guidance. That's the fault of people in professional communications that need to do a better job at explaining how science is an evolving process. How as we gather more information, we can make better decisions. So I think that's that's another area where we can do a better job of meeting people where they are. Mm. That's a great reminder. Um, not everyone shares our perspective, our point of view, or the amount of information that we have consumed. And um, showing people that you're willing to give them the benefit of the doubt, even if they're mistaken when they when they come to you, uh, being there with them on their playing field, um, you can begin to move the needle. You, you, they may not become true believers after, but at least if you've made them feel that they can let their defenses down and they can start to uh, absorb some new information, uh, then, then that's a win, however small it is. Right, right. As you said, that that's what moves the needle, certainly around vaccination. The one thing that we've seen that helps with that, turns out it isn't forwarding people memes that are really snarky about opposing vaccination. No, the thing that helps improve public vaccination is when healthcare practitioners that um, already have trust with their patients um, continue to approach the topic and speak to them about maybe how they came to their own conclusions. Yeah. Um, and I think that's, uh, that's kind of the, the opportunity that demands vulnerability and respect if we have wanted to also build trust. Absolutely. I think that's great. So, Margo, if people want to learn more uh, about you, about the book, where can they go? You can find Trustworthy everywhere books are sold. And you can find me on Twitter at mbloomstein um, and, and also at appropriateinc.com slash trustworthy. Excellent. Well, Margo, thank you so much for joining us here on Timeless Leadership and helping us to regain our trust. Thank you. Building trust isn't easy. It's something you need to be committed to over the long haul. But if your heart is in it, your words, and even more importantly, your actions, will be consistent and repeated for all to see. Thank you for joining us and for being an advocate for timeless and principled leadership, whenever and wherever you find it. I'm Scott Monty. Until next time, may you dream more, learn more, do more, and become more. For you are a leader.